It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 132. And this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Laura Davis farms about two and a quarter acres of vegetables at Long Life Farm in suburban Hopkinton, Massachusetts, with her husband, Donald Sutherland. Laura started farming after she was laid off from her 30-year career in the medical device business, and she and Donald farm full-time, selling their produce to a CSA and to two farmer's markets. Laura was attracted to farming through a passion for soil science and has put a lot of effort into remineralizing her soils. We discuss her approach to improving the soil in order to improve her crops and the reduced insect and disease pressure she's seen on her farm as a result. Laura also shares her experience with a recent foray into no-till production. Laura is also an organic certification inspector, and we discuss the ways that being a certified organic farm from very early on fit into Long Life Farm's business strategy. Laura also shares her tips for record-keeping and staying in your certification agencies and your organic inspectors' good graces. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. Farmersweb.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com Laura Davis, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. So, Laura, I'd like to start off like we usually do by having you tell us about Long Life Farm. Where are you guys located how are you marketing your produce? How long have you been doing it? Oh, thanks. Uh, we are located in Hopkinton, Mass., which uh, is where the Boston Marathon begins. And we have uh, approximately two and a quarter acres that we cultivate, uh, both leased lots, two different locations, but within a mile and a half of our home. We um, grow for about 90 families in a CSA, and we um, sell at a Saturday and Sunday farmer's market. And uh, we use our home base for all of our seedling growth and washing vegetables and packing vegetables and uh, storing them in the cooler so that the families can pick them up on pickup day. Great. Saturday and Sunday farmer's market. You guys must stay pretty busy. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a uh, (laughs) 24-7 career when the, uh, when the fruit and vegetables start growing. So um, that's the way we've managed it. I mean, if you guys are where the Boston Marathon starts, you're obviously not out deep in the country. No, we're about 45 minutes uh, to drive outside of Boston, west of, directly west of the city. Are you guys in the suburbs? We are in a um, what we call a bedroom community of of Boston. A lot of people live here and take the train in or some drive in. But yes, we are a a suburb. And you said that you're leasing two lots plus doing some of your production at home there. Where are those located relative to where you live? We have um, one lot that's about a quarter mile from our house and another uh, two acres that is um, about a mile and a half away. Uh, this isn't the bedrock of agriculture in Hopkinton by any stretch of the imagination. So we um, we went on Google Earth to find the open space near us when we decided to be farmers. And um, I wanted my girls to stay in this school system because I have two kids in school. Uh, Hopkinton has a very good school system. So we went and asked neighbors if they would let us use their 
uh, fields for growing vegetables. And the first pe- person we called said yes. And uh, the second year, the about the fifth person we called said yes. And so we, we leased two, two and a quarter acres. And what year did you guys get started? We started um, in 2011. So this is our seventh growing season this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Starting in 2011, you and your husband, Donald, you guys weren't young when you started farming. No, um, I had been in a 30-year career myself in uh, the medical device business, and my husband had most recently been a stay-at-home dad. And we, um, I was laid off from my job after 30 years, and uh, I decided that I needed to start, you know, uh, an, an austerity budget <laughs> while while I was on uh, unemployment. And what I did was I um, started taking some soil classes because I knew I couldn't afford my CSA any longer. And um, I met all sorts of interesting people and, and really got excited about soil chemistry. And jumped from there into farming. Well, we, we were looking to buy a, a, a business um, at first as my second act, and my goals were really to be near my community, uh, which I hadn't been in my corporate job where I had to travel globally. Um, I, didn't, I wanted to be able to be near uh, my kids and be able to volunteer at the school, which I'd never been able to do, and I wanted to be my own boss. So those were the criteria I was thinking about when I started my own business, and um, nothing really got me excited, and uh, we looked at a couple businesses to buy and franchises to buy, and my husband finally said, why don't you do something you're passionate about, and uh, <laughs> be careful what you wish for, because... Uh, Vegetable growing was it, and uh, I started, um, like I said, meeting really interesting and uh, open people. Farmers were very open about uh, helping you and educating you on uh, various techniques, and um, actually one of the people that I met at at my first uh, soil workshop hired me as a volunteer shareholder at her farm, and I worked for her um, in the uh, entire season in 2011. So that's where I I really got my, some experience. When you guys jumped into this, I mean, it's not like you did this while you had another income. How long did it take you to make the farm economically viable? Well, I would say that we, um, we made a little bit of money our first year. Uh, That was the whole point of leasing. So as not to go into debt. Um, you know, at our age, we didn't want to have a, another mortgage or, you know, another car payment. Um, we went into it with, uh, you know, a, a small amount of money that we knew we were going to invest in infrastructure. Um, uh, I would say it was about $25,000. And we made about five our first year. Um, and in terms of net income and, uh, every year since then, uh, we don't make a ton of, of money, but we certainly bring in between 25 and 30 each year. And, you know, with some of the savings that we've put aside, that was, that was, uh, really, uh, you know, we, we believed a successful, uh, venture. And is your husband full-time on the farm as well? He is. Yeah. And then how many other employees do you have? We have one full-time person that works with us um, April through uh, October, and we have one part-time person. Uh, She works uh, three days a week, and we also take advantage of of, um, four different volunteers who each work with us four hours per week. 
and they work as uh, volunteer shareholders. Now, you mentioned that you were attracted to this because of the soil science side of things. That's right. I came from a business where outcomes-based research was was something that we did in order to to uh, sell a product. So in the medical device business, if we could show an improved outcome for a patient, we would do clinical trials to show that. Um, that's the background I came from. So when I learned about uh, putting more nutrition into vegetables and how the nutrition in vegetables had declined, uh, such a great amount uh, since the 1920s, uh, I thought, well, wouldn't that be great to be able to market your vegetables based on higher nutrition? And so that's how I got hooked on um, on the um, the idea of improving our soils, because we certainly took over some soils that were pretty poor. Um, you know, our, the two acres that we took over were conventionally farmed and um, con- consistently tilled, you know, for 30 years. Uh, so they were pretty worn out and uh, we've, we've been able to improve it uh, quite a bit. I mean, it's, it's not an overnight um, job to improve the soil like that, but over the, over the years that we've been uh, leasing the land, uh, we've noticed dramatic improvement and improvement in terms of less bug pressure, uh, longer shelf life, uh, quality, more, uh, better quality taste. Um, and, um, you know, the, the plants actually are able to resist more stress, whether it be drought or um, um, freeze. Um, you know, if they get caught in a, a, a freeze and we hadn't covered them up, they're actually able to re- resist it uh, because of the... Um, the quality of their immune systems. So uh, soil science really was, uh, was for me, uh, eye-opening experience because uh, it's something that we don't know a lot about. I mean, most, we're flying to the moon, but we don't know more than 5 to 10% of what we should know about our soils. Talk to me about the program that you guys used because you guys came in looking to grow nutrient-dense food You've got these poor soils that have been farmed conventionally. What was the first thing you did? Well, the first thing that we we did was do a soil report, a soil test, and then look at where the major minerals and trace elements were. So we've been mineralizing, um, and then we put back the minerals that it needed. So things like calcium and potassium and uh, sulfur and uh, many of the uh, trace elements like you see in the elemental table. So boron, cobalt, copper, molybdenum, silica. These things are uh, traces that our bodies need in parts per million, uh, but if they're not in the soil, we can't get them and and be healthy. So the soil has to have a certain amount of these um, minerals and traces in order for the vegetables to have those same minerals and traces in, in order for us to be healthy as humans and as uh, animals needed as well. So you were really specific and targeted with the kinds of nutrients that you were applying. We were, yes. We follow the Albrecht model, which Charles Albrecht was a scientist in the, that lived in, um, uh, was part of Wash U um, in um, St. Louis uh, during the early uh, 1900s. So I'm familiar with the Albrecht model to some degree, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, there's um, there's a 
any, uh, a calculation of uh, soil minerals, the major minerals. Um, there's a a percentage of calcium uh, that they want your exchange capacity to be, to be holding. Uh, so upwards of 65 to 70% calcium. And uh, for magnesium, uh, it would be in the um, 15, 10 to 15% range, potassium in the uh, 2 to 5% range. Um, and then uh, that would be you know, the ideal soil for vegetable growing. And um, so once you get your soils up to that ideal uh, uh, balance in the soil, uh, then your vegetables go through a um, growth that most people don't know is possible. So instead of maybe just 10 pounds per tomato plant, you know, you have 50 pounds uh, from your tomato plant. But the the tomato plant is actually genetically able to produce much, much more than 50 pounds per plant. So um, those are the types of things you start seeing because the plant is um, making complex carbs and complex proteins, which it wasn't able to do with the limited nutrients in the soil before. And if you guys actually done any testing of the plant tissues to see if that nutrient density on the soil is actually translating through into your plants? We have not yet. Um, my original goal had been to, after five or six years, to test um, some actual uh, produce um, and compare it to what the USDA lists on their website for, um, let's say, calcium in in uh, head of broccoli. Um, we haven't done that just because of the cost of those types of lab tests. You know, five or six hundred dollars per test. Um, but I think that what we do use is a refractometer, which enables us to take the leaf and um, squeeze the sap out of the leaf and then measure the fructose in that leaf. And um, uh, so you've probably heard of bricks. Um, the term uh, brick, bricks is used, and that's what it, it means, is, is using a refractometer to actually measure out the exact uh, number that that sap, uh, or you can use it on on fruits or juices from vegetables as well. So that um, gives us a correlation to the, the nutrient density of that uh, leaf or... Um, so now is that something that has carried over into your marketing? Do you guys actually advertise your product as being nutrient dense? Um, we, we do. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as we look at our current business model, um, we're completely at full capacity for our farm. So the amount of advertising and marketing I've had to do recently has been minimal only because we've, we've sold out every year. And, and, you know, we have people calling and asking, well, can you go to this market? Can you go to that market? We're at capacity for not only our 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 manpower, but also our, um, our, our uh, production. So um, I think if we were able to expand into a new field, um, that would be when I would start marketing for the nutrient dense. But yes, we do tell our customers that this is, this is what, what we're trying to do to make our vegetables not only taste better, but be more nutritious. And based upon the feedback that they've given us, I, I think we're, we're getting there. Um, like I said, it's not an overnight, um, 
uh, thing that you can do. Um, most people that are working on their soil fertility in this manner uh, tend to work on them at least five years, uh, but going into 10 and 15 even. And um, so we, every year since we've started, we've seen um, significant improvement, not only in the organic matter, but also in the quality of the vegetables. And you talked about yield increases as well. Have you seen dramatic yield increases on the acreage that you're farming? We have. Um, we get another, you know, another 5,000 pounds out of the fields every year, and, and we haven't increased, uh, you know, the acreage that we're farming. So we definitely do see increases in, um, in yields. When you say you get another 5,000 pounds of produce out of it every year, is it another 5,000? Is that an increase that you're seeing year over year over year, or is that another 5,000 yes. compared to where you started? Um, yeah, so we, um, our first year, we had maybe 10 to 12,000 pounds of produce, and now we're about at 30,000 pounds. So um, we do see a, a definitive increase every year in our yields. And was all of the land that you started farming on, had that? Had all of that been in conventional crops before you started farming it? All but a quarter acre. Um, it had not been in uh, conventional crops in some time. Um, it had been in hay and, and been hayed for some time. Uh, the, the farm that we leased from had been a commercial farm about 15 years prior to us starting. Okay. And then I also wanted to ask just when you, when you were looking at at those soil amendments, are you also adding compost and, and other sources of organic matter or, or have you just focused on those calcium and other mineral applications? We, uh, we also add compost when we're planting. Um, we do um, buy quite a bit of compost and add it. Uh, the, the organic mat matter in the soil that when we started was around 1.8 to 2%. And, and right now we're at about um, almost 6% organic, organic matter. So that certainly has helped. And we also do uh, plant cover crops um, to help uh, grow organic matter as well. And although now we're not, we're not tilling it in as, as some folks do, um, we plant cover crops that are winter kill cover crops so that we don't have to till them in the next year. Got it. But it definitely helps with the with the fertility and the organic matter. Now, with two and a quarter acres, how are you guys managing that? Is is this a, a hand tools operation? Yes. Well, we originally purchased a BCS, and that's how we broke up the sod when we first started. Um, it's and we did we did use it for tillage each early season until this year. And this year we tried not to till anything. And so about 80% of our beds, we, um, we were able to plant uh, without tilling this year. Um, we, did, we did eventually have to till a couple of beds that were extremely grassy, but um, that's our goal is to try to turn over the beds uh, in the spring and then for successive uh, plantings without tilling. And uh, so we work with all hand tools, um, and uh, we really don't have any um, any mechanization at all. When you talk about planting without tilling, what are you doing to 
actually get those beds ready for production? I mean, you've got to do some sort of loosening of the soil, don't you? Well, um, we the beds um, were already raised from using the BCS in prior years, and we would use the rotary plow, which is the Berta plow on the back of the BCS, to make our raised beds. So going down one side and then the other side raises the beds about eight eight inches, and then we would rake them. So in years past, we would prepare the beds, and they have pretty much maintained their own their permanence there. So in the spring, we decided not to till this year at all, and we we pretty much used a wheel hoe um, and made furrows and planted. This is fairly new to us this year. We've we we think that is going to. Um, we've already noticed that there is some tightness to the soil if, when you don't till it. You know, it's not that real soft soil when you're planting, and so if you have any weeds, they're kind of tight in there too. But um, I will say that the crop that we've harvested from those beds has been very good, and we haven't noticed any decline in our yields for those beds. Um, we have noticed it being a little bit more difficult to weed, when we, but we do hope that by not tilling, we're going to have a lot less weeds. So um, we're still new to the no-till thing, but we are trying to, to go in that direction. Is it a significant labor savings for you not to be going through that bed preparation process? It is. Um, we also use a couple of other things that really help in this um, endeavor, and that is we use um, a Cover Pro Weed Guard, which is a black fabric. It's not a landscape fabric like you might think of. Uh, a thick plastic woven thing. It's more like the white row cover fabric, only it's black and it's a, a lot thicker. And um, we actually, in the spring, if we're not going to plant a few of the beds um, right away, like tomato beds or pepper beds, we will put the black fabric on top of the bed and staple it down and leave it there until we're ready to plant those beds so that no weeds grow back through the stubble of the old um, cover crop that has died over the winter. And then you're pulling that fabric off again before you do that plant. That's correct. We're pulling it off. And then once it's pulled off, we put one furrow down the middle of the bed. We plant the tomatoes and then we put the black fabric back on from plant to plant. So it's really in the walking path now. So it's now being, uh, it's being a weed guard for the entire season. And what's, we used to use hay for that instead of this black fabric. Uh, we do put some hay around the, the tomato plant. Uh, to prevent any splashback because there's still a little bit of dirt showing there, I would say, you know, maybe four inches wide all along the bed. And so we cover that with, um, with hay. And um, it really has been an awesome um, product for us because we can uh, put it down each bed in about five minutes. Uh, it's a lot cheaper than hay. And um, it also has benefits the second year when we go back to uh, plant those beds because we've got to, um, because we don't have any weeds growing there and they, there weren't any the, the prior year. And I'm curious now, when you're planting crops like root crops this year, I mean, have you, are your carrots growing okay without loosening the soil prior to planting them? Yes. Um, yes. In fact, uh, we've, we've harvested a couple of full beds of carrots this year and um, there was no issue at all with, uh, 
with any compaction. And uh, so we, we were quite pleased with, with how the root crops did. Are you doing any sort of a pre-plant weed control other than the occultation with the fabric? Um, if we have a succession uh, coming after a harvest, yes, we will use some occultation with either that same black fabric or we have used clear plastic as well um, following um, following what some other farmers have used. Uh, we have a gentleman in Connecticut that has taught uh, no-till farming in our area, Brian O'Hara from um, Old Tobacco Farm in um, Turnbull, I think it is, Connecticut. He will, um, so we followed the technique that he uses, which is that after your lettuce is done, you're going to mow it, and then you're going to put um, the plastic down for 24 to 48 hours when you have a hot day, at least above 70, 75 degrees. And it'll stay there for 24 to 48 hours, and then you'll pull it up, you'll put your new compost down, you'll reseed the bed, or, or replant the bed and um, and then uh, water it in. And that's pretty much how the bed gets turned over. That seems pretty remarkable to me that you could you could do it with that little soil disturbance. Well, we're we're trying and it's um, I, I think we'll we'll see next year how it pays off. But I mean, we are seeing benefits already this year just in terms of um, the amount of, you know, the work and also. Just, I mean, in the past, we have often just, you know, when we finished a bed, we would just put some cover crop on it and let it go until the next year. But, so we're actually getting more usage out of our beds from this technique because we would not have always replanted every bed that we had. When you're replanting a bed, are you reapplying fertilizers and soil amendments at that point? Uh, right now, we're just putting down new compost. Um Sometimes we are using a little bit of sulpamag as well. But other than that, we're not putting any more minerals or, uh, down at that point. And what kind of a rate of compost are you putting on your beds? We're putting on um, at least a, um, two wheelbarrows full and a 100-foot bed, 36 inches wide on the top of the bed. And then what other tools are you guys using for weed control on your farm? Well, we do a lot of hoeing. And um, we do um, a lot of pulling if a bed gets out of hand, uh, which it can do if we get busy doing other things, <laughs> which I'm sure everybody has a problem with. But um, we, uh, we just use hoes and um, manual hand pulling of weeds. Any particular hoe that you like over another? I do. I, I um, am particularly fond of um, the hose that Johnny sells, um, the collinear hose and um, the ones that um, that they have in their catalog. Uh, there's a, a little narrow one that's great for onion beds um, that uh, I love. And uh, But everybody has their favorite hoe. And most of the employees on, on our farm use uh, the hula hoe, which I don't prefer, but... <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never really understood the appeal of the hulo because the moment you grab that thing and start using it, your back's hunched over. Yeah, I don't, I, they're, they're, and they're too short. All of the, all of the Johnny's uh, hose have longer handles and it's, uh, it's great. I mean, I'm not that tall, but it seems to work a lot better when you have a longer handle. You know, there's enough of vegetable farming that happens with your butt up in the air that it's nice to be able to do something while you're standing up straight. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So now you guys are selling through a CSA and then through two farmers markets about 
about what percentage of sales is going to CSA and what percentage to the farmer's market? We have um, about 60%, 65% going to the CSA and then the rest of it going to the farmer's market. And I'm curious, you guys aren't doing any wholesale or restaurant sales, which seems to be a pretty common thing to do for farms of your size. Is there a reason that you haven't gone down that road? Um, it's really just been capacity. Um, we do have one restaurant client in our own hometown here. Uh, it's a Thai restaurant. They buy, uh, they just buy Thai basil from us, which is, you know, actually a nice little account. They buy five pounds a week, which is awesome when, it, when you're talking about Thai basil. Um, but they will also buy anything we have extra, like carrots and cucumbers and um, peppers. Um, but we haven't really gone out to look for new clients just because we've we've um, we uh, have don't have enough uh, production for them. Just haven't needed to, right? And haven't had any interest in shifting away from the farmers market. You know, I think um, it would definitely um, clear up our weekends and give us a little bit more, probably a little more free time. But um, I find that. Uh, I am also the manager of the Hopkinton Farmers Market, so I do find that to be a uh, a great asset being there as part of, uh, being part of the community, and really you know and meeting neighbors and meeting new residents in town and and uh, so forth. So uh, for me, it's really um, more than just the the sales side of um, the farmers market. We've talked to a lot of people. I'm thinking of, you know, JM Fortier or, or Ray Tyler or Curtis Stone on the on the podcast who are doing these small scale intensive market farms. And, you know, typically they're they're marketing through higher end outlets. I mean, sometimes farmers market, sometimes restaurants, but, you know, rarely through a CSA simply because of the the dollar value of the crops that they're growing and kind of how they're they're you know, it's it's uh, it's it's hard to justify making room for winter squash in a small market garden. Are you growing that kind of a diversity of crops for the CSA? We grow just about everything you can imagine except for corn and okra. So, you know, when people come to a CSA, they that's one of the expectations is that you have a good diversity of, of produce and so forth. Um, if, you know, I think that uh, that's, you know, what they expect when they, when they, um, look at uh, having a CSA to experience the seasons and eat what's in season for, you know, all the way through from June through October. So for us, it's actually worked out, you know, very well. And we try to grow things that they can't get at the grocery store. You know, we do grow butternut squash. That's probably a a bad example, but we also grow um, a lot of things that they might not get at the grocery store, like purple beans or uh, we sell a lot of uh, yellow beans instead of, you know, green beans or, um, you know, yellow snap beans instead of the green snap beans or purple broccoli instead of the green broccoli. So uh, we try and we try and keep it interesting. You said you're not having to do a lot of marketing for your CSA. You must have a pretty good retention rate. I think we're probably about similar to what other farms do on CSA. I think the national average is about 50%, and I think we're around 65. We get a lot of people back every year, and um, I think that's just the nature of the CSA. People don't know what they're getting into if they haven't experienced it before. Sometimes can overload on veggies. So talk to me a little bit more about your, your land situation. You said you've got... Mm-hmm. 
you've got two parcels of land and then you've also got your greenhouse and your and your storage facility at home, right? We have a small seedling greenhouse at home and um, storage facility. We call it the two two car barn. <laughs> yeah. And um, we have a walk-in cooler, and uh, that's at our. And we have a small uh, perennial um, herb garden here on our home lot, and uh, then we have a seventy-two foot. Uh, greenhouse at our small lot, which is a quarter mile away. And um, we, um, but the one at, at our home base is largely used for uh, seedlings and drying uh, onions and that sort of thing. And then are you transporting the produce all back to back home in order to, to pack it and prepare it for market? We are. Uh, we don't have potable water at either field, so we definitely have to do that. And people pick up here anyway. That's got to be kind of interesting for your neighbors. Um, they don't seem to um, mind it much. Our, our, our neighbor, neighborhood is, um, is wooded and forested, and uh, we don't have sidewalks, so it's you know, a lot of boulders. So it's kind of, it is a bit where we're looking, even though we're in the suburbs. Um, and so I don't think um, I don't think there's been you know any issue with the with the neighbors anyway. Have you had to make many changes to your two car garage to make it a suitable place to pack produce? Well, we actually don't pack it in the garage. We we do we set up um, we have we set up tents and uh, wash under tents, and uh, then they come down and go to the farmers market. So it's a virtual wash stand. You're storing the crops. Do you have a walk in cooler? We do. Yep. We have a shed that we uh, have designed with a CoolBot device inside, and uh, it works. It works great for bringing the temperature of your produce down and keeping your uh, produce at the right temperature. And what day are you doing your CSA distributions? We do it on Tuesday and Fridays. And Fridays we also harvest for our Saturday market, so it's a big day on Friday. Okay. So you're not you're not storing a lot of produce for an extensive period of time. No, in fact, most everything we harvested today will go today and be picked up today. And on Friday, we have CSA members pick up their shares, and then it goes to the market on Saturday at eight a.m. So most of it sells, and then for our Sunday market, we harvest on Sunday morning. When you say that that everything you pick today is going to go today, I will just mention that we're recording this interview on a Tuesday, even though it's going to come out on a Thursday morning. So that's a a CSA pickup day for you. So I just want to make it. It's different to be you and me than it is to be somebody (laughs) listening to the show. So, um, okay. And I'm always curious, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we had on our farm with the washing and packing was just dealing with the water. And, And you said you got potable water there at home. Uh, mm-hmm. But what are you doing with the wastewater? How are you guys managing that? And and all of the mud and dirt that comes off of produce when you're cleaning it. Well, it um, it actually goes um, into our woods. I mean, it, it goes downhill into our woods. Nice. That's an easy, easy solution. Yes. You mentioned that your crops over the years have become more resistant to pests. Um I'm assuming this is something you guys have actually observed on your farm. You're not just saying the things that you read in the book about nutrient dense farming. You've, you've seen these changes no. happen in your operation. We definitely have. Um, the bugs can't digest uh, the plant material when it gets to a certain point um, of this 
of this <laughs> growth cycle. And um, we've noticed that um, at least on our small field we've had for full seven years, we've mineralized it for six. The larger field, our, our landlord actually sold some of our land and we had to start on a new place on his farm. But we've been on this particular field for now our third season. So um, we haven't we haven't seen those changes as much as we have on the field that we've been mineralizing for six. And so um, we definitely have seen uh, a huge impact um, where in one field things were frozen, on the other field they weren't. And um, they should have been based upon, you know, what we've seen there in the past with, with freezing. Uh, so we definitely have noticed a difference. And the shelf life is, is the amazing thing, too, where... You know, sometimes you get stuff home from the grocery store. It lasts, you know, uh, less than a week, sometimes only two or three days before it starts rotting. I'm talking about lettuce and other greens. Um, we'll have them in the refrigerator for several weeks, and they're still completely fresh looking. So it, it's definitely something that we're noticing a difference with. That's really great. And it's, I mean, it's got to be really rewarding to see those kinds of changes. It is, definitely. Have you seen a difference in the attractiveness to insect pests and and has that changed how you guys are managing insect pests on your farm? We have seen a difference um, in the way that um, certain things uh, will chew on the plants. Um, The only thing we haven't really seen a big change in is um, things like uh, cabbage lopers. So those are still a bit of a, you know, nemesis. Uh, But in terms of other, like, Flea beetles and those sorts of bugs, we've definitely seen a, a big reduction. Wow. I mean, growing vegetables without flea beetles could actually be kind of fun. It is. In fact, uh, our, our full-time employee cannot believe that she's working on this farm and she's never seen she's never seen anything like it. <laughs> <laughs> Although she's worried, so she still covers things. But uh, it's like, you know, if we leave it open, it's not going to be the end of the world. They're, you know, we, don't, we just don't have that, that much pressure anymore for, with flea beetles. I think that's fantastic and not the normal trajectory on a vegetable farm. Right, right. What are you guys doing for pest control when necessary? Do you guys, now you guys are a certified organic farm. Are you spraying, hand picking? What what kinds of controls do you use? We do a lot of hand picking, especially with potatoes. We don't use anything on our potatoes, although, you know, sometimes you think, you know, we should look into it because potatoes can be, this year it seems like we had, um, a lot of great growth and and we definitely kept ahead of it with the hand picking, but we do use um, things like Dipel for um, cabbage worms and cabbage lopers. And we have not really used much else besides that um, this year. That's been really the extent of it is Dipel. Laura, with that, I think this is a good time for us to stop for a couple minutes, take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Laura Davis from Long Life Farm in Hopkinton, Massachusetts. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmer's Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone or by email. Use Farmer's Web to generate a product catalog for buyers, allow buyers to review your real-time availability online, and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. 
Farmers Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more, while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can also download detailed financial reports. Farmers Web offers a free account type and flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plans at any time. Check out a demo video and the Farmers Web Guide to Working with Wholesale Buyers at FarmersWeb.com. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, helping plants make sugar from sunshine since 1992. Through 23 years of producing the best potting soils you can buy, Vermont Compost Company founder and owner Carl Hammer has stayed intimately involved in the company, working with a small staff of committed individuals to provide compost-based potting soils chock full of microbial partners and humus-bound nutrients. The people at Vermont Compost Company have a practical understanding of the challenges that organic growers face, and they combine that with a comprehensive understanding of soil and plant science and an intuitive comprehension of things that often has Carl and his crew sticking their noses into a handful of compost and inhaling deeply as though they were sampling a fine brandy. Vermont Compost is the real thing built on consistency instead of glitz. Like the donkey on their logo, Vermont Compost potting soils aren't glitzy or glamorous. They're steadfast and consistent, stubbornly making certain that your transplants can get everything they need from a few cubic centimeters of soil. By the way, those donkeys are the real thing, and you get a little bit of donkey manure in every batch of Vermont Compost potting soil. Feed your plants the best. VermontCompost.com. All right, and we're back with Laura Davis from Long Life Farm in Hopkinton, Massachusetts. And I'm going to stumble over that that name a little bit. But so a lot of small farms forego organic certification. And mm-hmm. you've embraced that wholeheartedly there at Long Life Farm and in the rest of your life as well. That's right. I, I felt it was really important to certify uh, when we were new farmers. Um, my husband didn't feel the same way, but I um, sort of insisted. Our groceries that we buy are mostly all certified organic. We're probably 90, I would say 90% of what we uh, consume is is certified organic. And so we live our lives that way. And I really believe that our business should be um, that way as well. And um, since I, uh, the the woman that I had worked for my first year um, on her farm uh, was the executive, is still the executive director of the Northeast Organic Farming Association in, in Massachusetts. And um, having worked on a certified organic farm, I felt it was very doable, especially since we were leasing land that had not had anything prohibited sprayed on it uh, in many, many years. So we were able to gain certification and market our our vegetables as certified organic third season, I guess it was. Um, but the important thing there is that when you're a brand new farm, how do you get people to take a risk on you? They don't know if you you can farm. They don't know what you're doing in terms of your practices. And so seeing the USDA or organic label on our on our sign, you know, definitely gave people confidence in, in the fact that they could trust uh, us to feed their family. And that was very important as brand new farmers. Um, and it definitely has made a difference. People come to us to um, to buy certified organics, and they know what that stands for, not only just in terms of the, the lack of, of chemicals, but, you know, the fact that we are um, stewards of the land and that we're trying to make that soil better. So it was very important to us as we got started. Then you've also done work with NOFA, Massachusetts, NOFA being the Northeast Organic Farming Association, Massachusetts the NOFA Massachusetts being the, of course, the, the state branch of that. You've done work with them as an organic certification assistance coordinator, right? 
that's correct. And uh, it's funny how that started because when I was going through trying to get my farm certified, I was I was uh, participating with NOFA as a board member at that time. And um, I was sitting in a board meeting and I said to them, I said, listen, I, I need some help with this. I'm stuck on these questions and I'm not really sure how to proceed. And, and there's nobody here at NOFA to help me. What's the deal? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Well, be careful what you wish for because then all of a sudden you become the the organic certification uh, assistance coordinator and that's with this was born this role was born in 2015 and um we worked in concert with um Bay State Organic Certifiers to uh, get a grant, and um, the USDA um, was looking for uh, partners in putting together um, marketing materials to promote certified organic, and um, between Bay State and NOFA, we put together a proposal that uh, enabled us to work with some farms and help them with their paperwork, and we set up a basis of how this would all work. And um, um, it worked so great. The first year, we we got um, 15 farms on board that I helped to get certified in 2015. And um, every year since then, we've had about eight new farms that have come to me for help. Um, Bay State continues to have record numbers each year of new applicants that are wanting to be certified. So even though on the national level, the, you know, organics has taken a, a uh, you know, some hits in terms of, you know, could people trust their its integrity? When it comes to small farms, you know, I think people really do trust the organic label. Well, and I think it's an important point there is that the problems that we have with certified organic operations and and fraud, I I believe are really are focused on the larger operations and and sort of the 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 corporate organic agriculture. Where right. I really think that when you're dealing with small farmers, a lot of times it it really is a, a mark of integrity and an and an assurance of of kind of that you're doing that extra ten percent that. That's right. Above and beyond just being a sustainable farmer, that you're actually taking the taking those extra steps, uh, and I that's think that's right. a really nice reassurance for customers. Um, and you know, a lot. I mean, the so there's always two complaints from small growers about organic certification, and and one is the cost, and the other is the paperwork. And you know, with the cost, there's the organic certification cost share, which can do a pretty significant job of defraying those expenses. But then on the paperwork side, that's primarily where you're doing your work, right? That's right. Um, I would say that, um, well, paperwork is a, you know, is something that all small businesses have to do regardless of whether you're certified organic. And, And most of the, I would say, 80% 80% of that paperwork are records that you would need for certification. So um, I don't think that the record keeping is that onerous. Uh, you know, some people just are not record keeping types. <laughs> so we all know there are those of us out there that are, you know, not great at paperwork. But, um, and maybe you have an employee do it for you if you're one of those folks. But uh, I would say that the record-keeping requirements for organic certification are not prohibitive by any stretch. Um, you know, if you set them up your first year and, and you um, keep, you know, your harvest records and you keep yeah, your production re- records, all farmers have, are keeping those anyway, um, 
that's really, uh, and they all have to keep records of their insecticide use anyway. All of these things that conventional farmers do, they're very similar in terms of what records you keep. And it would be similar if you were going to be certified organic. Tell me how you help people get their paperwork together. Well, I work with them in a couple different ways. If they're computer savvy um, and they feel comfortable in, in starting, I will generally get them the forms that they need in order to um, uh, put their organic f- farm plan together. Um, and um, I let them know that uh, I usually give them about an hour uh, of, of consultation just to get them going, just in terms of strategy. Okay, tell me about your land. Has anything prohibited been uh, used on it, if you know of? How long have you owned it? Is it newly acquired? Is it leased? A few questions to get them moving in the right direction. Um, if you're just starting off, you know, most important thing to do is check everything that you're applying. You know, you don't want to put anything down that might be prohibitive. So checking that is double checking that. And I can help them with that as well. I can look things up, tell them if it's approved or restricted and how they have to handle that. Um, oftentimes, people that are pretty savvy computer-wise, they can do it, do their applications on a computer form and then just call me or email me when they get stuck on certain questions. And that happens because sometimes it's worded differently than they may, you know, know. tell me about your, your weed management strategy or tell me about your um, insect management strategy. Well, what do they want me to say? You know, they, these are normal questions that I get. Um, and then other people who may be a little bit older and are not computer literate, I have often sat down with them and filled out the forms. So uh, it kind of just depends upon the person and what type of help they need. Um, and lastly, if somebody feels really confident, runs through all the paperwork, I offer them um, to look at their dossier before they submit it. And... Um, Make sure that everything is, there's no questions that they've created by filling out things a certain way. Um, Base State was so happy with the, the these types of um, uh, working relationships and the farms that I helped that they asked me to be, to train to be an organic inspector. Um, the, the year that we worked on the 15 farms, they just felt that those dossiers were in such great shape and they were so well organized when they got them that they had to do a lot less work before they sent that form uh, over to an inspector to schedule an inspection. So um, it was really a, um, a win-win both for the farmers and for NOFA as well as uh, Bay State Organic Certifiers. What was it about those forms and about the work that you were doing with the farmers that that help those dossiers to be more organized, help that organic farm plan to, to really to shine and to, to make things easier for the certifier. Because when you're able to put in a good application that's really complete, I mean, it makes your certifier job easier, but it also reduces the amount of time that you have to spend with the inspector on your farm. And that's a exactly. big deal for both time and expense that's required. So what is it that you were doing with the farmers that, that helped with that? What, what made the difference? Well, completeness of a question and answer is really important. So uh, most people that fill out an application don't understand that what they're looking for, uh, let's say Dipel, you know, they'll say it's, you know, they'll go down the list of their insect products that they use 
they'll say Dipel and they'll say it's an approved product and then they won't fill in the last cell of the of the form. The last cell is, uh, you know, what are you doing? This is not how it's worded. It's called an annotation. What are you doing before you use Dipel as a cultural practice? And you need to list those things out there. And and I look at it and I say, well, Dipel is not an approved product. It's a restricted product. So these are things that pe- people make mistakes on as a, a standard mistake every single time I see a new applicant. Um, so once they understand what's supposed to go in that chart, then it's easy. But no one you know, knows it unless, you know, they've been taught that. So, um, it's just uh, more completeness is what Bay State liked. They didn't have to call the applicant to ask a lot of questions about what they meant or why that wasn't filled in. If a question, if they didn't know the answer to a question and they left it blank, that's not a good thing. You know, you have to have everything filled in. So just somebody looking over those applications was a huge plus. For um, for both the farmer applicant and the and the certifier, I think it's one of the frustrating things for me about filling out an organic certification application. And you know, I've been I've I've been doing these since I think about 1998 on my own, and a lot of times it feels like a test, and it it feels like you know, and, and sometimes like when you were in high school or college, and the professor would ask questions, and they would be intentionally vague you know, to see if you actually knew what you were talking about. And I find that to be a really frustrating aspect of filling out a, a, a farm plan. You know, like you said, with the, the, you know, when you have that last column after Dipel, you know, it's a restricted product. You're not supposed to use it unless you're already, unless your cultural controls have failed. So then you're supposed to list what you're doing for the cultural controls. Wow. I mean, it's like, well, of course I'm doing some cultural controls. I've, you know, I add fertility. I, I monitor for the, for the insects. I don't just spray on a calendar. You know, there's like a lot of that stuff that seems really obvious, but they need you to say it. They need you to say it and, and they need you to write it in there. And the job, once your organic farm plan is approved and you're certified organic, the job of the inspector then is to come out and have you say it again <laughs> to verify everything that you've written down. And, and, you know, so I think the customer can really feel confident that the, that the farmer is doing what he's saying he's doing because it's being, you know, this is what the inspector does. He verifies everything in your plan and may go over every single thing in your plan just to make sure and ask you again, just to make sure that's your practice. So. Um, that's, that's what it's all about is making sure that the farmer is doing what he's, what he or she is saying they're doing. You were doing this work before you became an organic inspector. What was it in your experience that helped you to know what answers farmers needed to be putting on their organic farm plan questionnaire? Well, Bay State spent, um, quite a bit of time training me. So we sat through, um, a good, a good two weeks, uh, off and on of, of training and, and, and them asking me to fill out a form, whether it be the livestock form or whether it be the crop farm form or the, uh, poultry forms. Um, and then we went over them and every single question we went over them and over them. 
And um, the great thing about me helping farmers is that if even when I get stuck, because I don't know all the answers and things do change, um, I'm able to call them and ask them what this means. The farmer can't do that because they state is not supposed to consult with them. So they're in a very, you know, unique relationship. They're the certifier. They can't consult with the farmer. I can consult with the farmer, and I can consult with certif- with base date uh, so that I can help that farmer. So it's a, re- it's a really great um, way to be able to give this type of assistance to uh, farmers that want to apply. Now, you've also gone through the organic certification inspection training. Yes. You, you tell me about what that process was like? Yes. So that's um, a week-long intensive program that's put on by the International Organic Inspector Association, IOIA. And um, uh, my class was made up of about 30 people, and um, I would say half of them were farmers, and not all crop farmers, but some livestock farmers as well. And um, we were we were uh, had lots of workshops and instruction and, and uh, seminars as part of this whole thing. And at the end of that training, we actually had to do a mock inspection of a farm that was a, a real certified organic farm. And, um, and then we were, uh, we either, you know, then we had to take a test, an exam, and it was about a four hour exam. And, um, we had to get a certain, uh, grade in order to, to pass the test. And then are, are you actively inspecting farms? I am. I, um, I do one inspection every week. So I take a half day off the farm to go to another farm nearby, usually within an hour's drive to do an inspection. So um, I can't do anything more than that just because I don't have time. But what I love about it is that I see what everybody else is doing and I get lots of great ideas and um, uh, I come back either with vegetable envy or, or, uh, or, or not, <laughs> depending, <laughs> upon, or depending upon what the farmer's doing. But I certainly learn an awful lot from the other farmers that I inspect. So I start April 1st and then I go through um, mid-October and I do just one a week. I've always said that one of the best things you can do as a farmer is to go see other people's farms. What a great way to be able Absolutely. to do that. I love it. I, I just love that part. And it does, you know, give me a little bit of, of a clear perspective, you know, when I get back to my own farm and say, Hey, it's, you know, not that bad <laughs> or it's not, it's not that great or whatever. When you're doing the organic certification inspections, what are the most common mistakes that you see that people are making with regards to their organic certification? Well, I would say that the one thing that stands out often is that um, they don't have their record available for me to look at. Not that they're not keeping the record, but let's just say that I'm there early in the year and they don't have their uh, prior year records with them. Um, That's a regulation that they have to make records available to the inspector when the inspector is there. And um, very often, their office is in their home. Their um, file box is someplace else besides the pickup truck. That's pretty standard. 
They might have a journal book that they keep of their records, um, but they don't keep the prior years available. So uh, that's probably one of the things I see very often and um, will, you know, it's not a nonconformance as nonconformances go, but it's something that people, you know, definitely need to keep in mind. They need to have records available for the inspector so that they can ensure that they're doing what they say they're doing. Right. So when you say that you're what you're talking about is not that the re, not that they don't have the records somewhere on the farm but that they have to spend a bunch of time actually getting them for you or maybe they're 5 miles away you know and and that's not you know something that I'm going to ask them to go get they're supposed to have them with them what are what are some other common mistakes that you see when it comes to inspection time i would say that Often, uh, a new product that a farm decides to use is not on the organic farm plan. So let's just say they have a recommendation from another farmer or they're at a conference and they see somebody selling something and they say, yeah, I'm going to try it. And they bring it back to their farm and they they use it uh, without consulting with their certifier, which is, you know, oftentimes does not result in a... um, a problem, uh, but it can. Um, you know, I was working with a a, um, a farm, not a, on the inspection side, but actually helping a farmer get a certification. And you know, limestone seems very you know uh, simple to buy, but if you buy the wrong limestone, um, you can um, be declined for certification, which in this case this woman was, because she used a limestone that was prohibited. It, it had a, uh, the wrong, um, it had some processing uh, type of products in it, so it was um, not able to be used. But she had already put it down. So those types of things are really critical. Inputs are extremely critical, and you don't want a farmer to get in trouble and have and lose three years for applying something that they shouldn't have. So. Uh, certifier is great to work with. You just have to send them a note or pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, I, I want to use this. It's not on my farm plan. Could you add it? Because I'm going to go ahead and use it. Is, every, is that okay? And then it might take you a minute to do that. So that's something that people don't do. I guess depending on your farm and your marketing situation, I mean, if you guys lost your organic certification, well, you know, you've lost your organic certification, but you can still sell to all the markets that you're selling to. But if you know, if you're in the wholesale marketplace and you lose your organic certification, you're done. That's right. And so really just with, with anything that you're going to apply on your farm, pick up the phone, call your certifier and verify that it's acceptable for use. Exactly. When in doubt, call them up. <laughs> well, and it sounds like maybe even when you're not in doubt, I mean, you know, if you're just going, well, yeah. you know, limestone's limestone, right? That's you right. Know, until it isn't. Exactly. What else do you see on farms? I would say those are two of the main things. Um, You know, oftentimes uh, they don't really think through this cultural practice requirement and they will use products that are approved for organic use, but they're not really they're not really doing the things uh, they're using it even before they have to. In other words, Maybe their spacing wasn't uh, correct in terms of planting. Maybe they're, they've just got too many weeds in the field. It's causing a lot of, you know, bug pressure. Maybe they're not looking at um, uh, varieties that are disease resistant. Um, I think those are big things. Another big, big thing is that many certifiers haven't um, 
really come down on farms when they're not using organic seed. Uh, I would say that most of the new farms that I inspect are somewhere between, you know, 85 and 95% uh, organic seed uh, for all their, their seedlings. But there are many farms out there that are 30, 40, 50% organic seeds. And um, they don't look for new varieties to change to because they haven't really been pressured to. But um, I see that in mostly older farms that have been certified for a very long time. And, I mean, you haven't been inspecting very long, but are you seeing a change in how certifiers are approaching questions like the organic seed requirement? I am seeing a little bit. Um, I'd like to see more. I'd like to see, um, you know, certifiers actually put more pressure on these farms to to really try harder to trial new varieties. Um, that's one of the questions we ask a farm if they're at a low percentage of organic seed is, you know, what organic varieties are you trialing? And if they don't tell me there's any they're they're trialing, then I will write that on their exit report saying, hey, you know, you need to be trying more organic varieties. But in general, um, it's it's a very it's a very it's a it's a light type of uh, leniency that that they're given. And of course, you've seen a lot of different record keeping systems on farms. If you're inspecting one a week and you've been doing that for a couple of years. Have you seen any magic bullet solutions to doing the record keeping? Um, I really haven't. It, you know, everybody uses something different. You'll see some people using, you know, uh, record keeping software, uh, Cogs Pro or um, um, some others. Uh, most people that I've seen uh, that are keeping good records are just using Excel sheets that they, you know, of, of sheets they've created or that they've, uh, pulled uh, from other farms. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of um, just binders with and portfolios just with handwritten notes, which is totally fine. Um, but I would say that um, those that are really able to tell you what their yields are or, or that really do look at and trying to improve what they're doing on efficiencies, um, you know, they're keeping track of a lot of different things and they're keeping spreadsheets. So um, that's that, I wouldn't say that's that's common, but it's you see it more and more. Well, you mentioned a couple of things, you know, cost and um, paperwork. And, you know, you address the, the cost. Of, and for small farms, I think that the cost is extremely limited. Um, you know, for a farm our, our size, you know, you know, our revenues are around forty-five to 50000 And, you know, for our farm, our, our fee after the cost share is, is about two fifty. So... Um, it's really a, re a very reasonable um, thing to do to, to give customers that extra confidence. Um, and again, the paperwork is um, something they're going to have to do anyway as, as a farm and as a small business. Sometimes organic farmers will say things like, well, being certified organic makes me a better farmer. Have you found that to be the case? Um, I think it definitely keeps you on track. Um, I think it definitely makes you do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do, like look at your harvest records um, after your year and see you know, how you can improve that. Um, 
you know, if I wasn't certified organic, I, I may or may not be keeping harvest records. I mean, I wasn't keeping harvest records when they came to inspect me my first year. But that had to change. That was part of the deal, right? You know, and they came back to see me a second time my first year to make sure I was keeping those records. So that has made me a better farmer, keeping the better records for sure. Now, Laura, you mentioned that that you were on the board for NOFA Mass. And if I remember right, that's actually something that happened very early in your farming career, right? Yes. Um, during uh, when I finished my first year with uh, Many Hands Organic Farm, um, Julie had asked me if I would, you know, like to get involved with with NOFA. And at that time, I joined as a member of the board, and I was the um, worked on a couple of the committees, finance and and uh, personnel. And um, as you're with NOFA, you know, your role definitely evolves. And I became the treasurer of the organization and uh, headed up the finance committee. And and um, most recently, last December, um, our, our current president had left and um, I was voted in to be the president of the board at NOFA. Um, so, you know, it's it's a great organization. It's an organization that, you know, educates and advocates for organic food. and um, the executive director has been there over 30 years, and uh, it's been a very consistent organization. And uh, it's a great group to be a part of. It really is. And, you know, they really do try to um, to help farmers and gardeners and landscapers to, um, you know, to, to live an organic life. So um, it's uh, it's a, been a great uh, association as far as I'm concerned. I, I enjoy uh, being a part of it. Well, and just thank you for doing that work. I've, I served on the board of Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education ah. Service for, I mean, I don't even know how long, 12, 13 years and, and was president for a couple of years early on. I know how much work goes into that. And I really, and, but I also know how important it is to have people who are willing to serve in that role. So thank you for doing that. Well, it's been my pleasure. It's a, yes, it is a lot of work, <laughs> but um, it's mostly a pleasure too. With that, Laura, I'd like to turn to our lightning round. And first, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round, as well as perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast, is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but they are truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com. Laura Davis, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Well, I would say that it has to be the um, the old crank. The old crank is a uh, is it a device that was invented by an employee's husband that rolls up our weed guard at the end of the season. It's an awesome tool. <laughs> you, so this is something that you guys have made at home. Tell me what this. Tell me what it looks like. It's got a, a couple of sawhorses and um, 
a handle with some um, wooden wheels that in, in the middle is a PVC pipe that's uh, about three inches in diameter and um, we are able to roll up you know all of the black fabric we we use throughout the farm, which is substantial. It's um, it's probably you know I would say sixty five or seventy percent of our our acreage is covered with this black fabric in the in the walking paths. When you put that fabric away for storage, how do you keep the mice out of it? Uh, the mice haven't been a problem with that. They 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 love row cover, but they they ha- it hasn't been a problem with the mice at all. Surprisingly. Now, what's your favorite resource? Where do you where do you turn when you need information about what to do on your farm? Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, well, I love Veg Notes that's put out by the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, that's an awesome newsletter we get once a week in our mailbox and uh, tells us you know what's happening out there and what to be wary of or what to start and uh, just some great ideas like planting scallions for your fall. Uh, fall crop, which I'd never done. So I thought, okay, we'll try that. That sounds great. Um, but normally if I have a problem, you know, you do your, your, your share of Google searches, but uh, I would say, you know, Sarah has a lot of great, um, um, e-organic has some great uh, webinars and I um, have definitely referred people to the Rodale uh, organic farming uh, training if they're interested in looking at organic and they don't really know what it's all about. Uh, so those, and certainly the NOFA website has got all of these archived workshops and um, tape recordings of um, some wonderful uh, farmers and speakers that uh, it's a great resource. Great. And what's your favorite crop to grow? Garlic. <laughs> Definitely garlic because you can plant it in the fall and mulch it with straw and walk away until scape time. Love that. And then uh, harvesting is easy. It's just everybody loves it. And the, the aroma is just so wonderful. It's uh, people are picking up their their shares and seeing it dry in the in the greenhouse. What would Donald say is your farming superpower? Uh, well, it was really my vision and, you know, I, I know he will say that, uh, you know, he's a mere employee here. Um, it's really putting it all together and putting all the pieces together, which, which I have done. And, um, you know, just the coordination and the, the management and the, uh, the vision, um, I know there's a lot of skills there, but, um, it's, it's amazing to me that what we have today, it wasn't here, you know, six years ago. I really like that. Finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Well, it probably would have been um, buy the tractor with the front loader. Uh, for sure. <laughs> so many times when we're just pushing a wheelbarrow or lifting things. And, you know, as, as you mentioned early on, we're not uh, spring chickens. My husband had a new knee put in last December. He's going to get the other one done this December. So if we, you know, we should have just bit the bullet and bought a, an old used tractor with a front loader. At least it would have been a helpful thing to be able to make compost, to be able to deliver the compost to the beds. Um, and, um, yeah, so that would have been that would have been it. Laura Davis, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer Farmer podcast today. 
Thank you, Chris. I really uh, enjoyed it, and I uh, appreciate the invitation to do so. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 132 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Davids. That's D-A-V-I-S. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by Local Food Marketplace, providing an integrated, scalable solution for farms and food hubs to process customer orders, including online ordering, harvesting, packing, delivery, invoicing, and payment processing. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. You can head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoyed the show. You can comment on the show notes. You can tell your friends about us on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I will do my best to get them on the show. Laura's on the show because her name came up on that suggestions form. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Farmer to Farmer.